I saw that video yesterday when I was doing a little research for my message. And I was struck by it because um, I was thinking about how easy it would be to add to that and say, would you want to be someone that um, is from our LGBTQ plus community and be treated the way that sometimes this country and certain parts of our culture treat that community? Or how about an immigrant or a poor person or someone who's disabled? How about a woman? I was struck by it because tonight we're going to be talking about being human. I'm Debbie Manning. I'm one of your pastors here at the table, and we're in a series that we're calling Do I Stay or Do I Go? It's based on Brian McLaren's book, Do I Stay Christian? And Matt and I have been talking over the last month about reasons why we would stay Christian. We said from the beginning we're not trying to convince anybody one way or the other. And starting next week, Matt will continue the series with sort of the how of it. But tonight, we're talking about the idea that we stay Christian because we're human. And in the humanness of things, we tend to mess things up just a bit. I think God's intent for humanity is something far richer and more beautiful and inclusive, and somehow we get our hands on it over time and kind of messes it up. And even just thinking about that video, I was thinking about how in the day-to-day, just in recent weeks, this idea somehow that there are people that are in and some that are out, that there are good and there are bad, they're clean and they're unclean, that somehow in our humanity we always end up putting some people here and some people there. You know, a couple weeks ago I wasn't here because I was in Seattle on a little four-day vacation with my husband visiting family. And we were with my nephew Jake and his husband Anthony who had just returned from a three-week honeymoon in Europe. And we had a chance to sit down with them and talk about how wonderful it was. But one of the things that came up was the uncertainty of how they were to behave in certain countries, in certain places, because it didn't feel safe to hold hands, to do things that my husband and I might get to freely do anywhere we go. And then just this past Friday, I was having coffee with a dear friend, someone I worked with at Christ Presbyterian Church. He had moved away to Michigan, and he was back in town, And we were having coffee, and he was telling me how they finally found this amazing church, this church that was doing all these things for the homeless. They had a food shelf. They had this amazing adult, young adult ministry. They were just about to sign on the bottom line. And it was time for the elders to renew or um, to um, nominate them. And they found out that only men in the church were elders. Blew him away. Their wife had, his wife had been an elder back at Christ Presbyterian, huge leader, impacted people. And he couldn't, he said, you know what? When I think about you being a pastor at CPC, I couldn't imagine that there wouldn't be females that were actually working, working for the good of the, commu- the kingdom, that they wouldn't be allowed in. But for whatever reason in our humanness, we continue to tend to put people on the outside. Hey, I'm going to pause just a second. Christian, I feel like I'm clicking and... Do you guys hear that or 
No, I'm good? Okay, must just be me. Um, so here's the thing, though, that we can't continue to talk about what I'm going to talk about without talking about this idea of the cult of innocence. That's a word that Nadia Bowles Weber came up with. And what the cult of innocence means is this, that there's an innocent victim to defend, plus an evil villain to, to oppose, and all of that equals innocence to enjoy. Let me say that again. An innocent victim to defend plus an evil villain to oppose equals innocence to enjoy. And if we really think about it, so much of our contemporary Christian behavior revolves around this idea of the cult of innocence. It's easy. It was easy when I was first reading this to jump to um, so many things on the right, on the more conservative Christian side of things. But as I reread it again, I started to feel a little bit convicted of some of those places that I jumped to, that somehow I'm the good guy, they're the bad guy, where I stand and what I'm doing, my lack of seeing God in them is actually the opposite of what Jesus calls us to do and who he calls us to be. And if we see Christian identity as a pathway to innocence, we're seeking to be clean, and if we're seeking to be clean, then we are seeking to be separate from the unclean. That struck me. And what Brian McLaren would tell us is that staying Christian is a way of leaving the cult of innocence. Here's what he says in his book, Do I Stay Christian? Christianity for you is a temple a sanctuary, a destination where good and innocent people isolate themselves from the dirty contagion of their unclean neighbors so they can enjoy the sweet fellowship of their own kind. So often, God's story, this beautiful story of grace and love and inclusion is a story that we take we derail, we create this story of separation, of, superior, of superiority. It's a little bit scary. And it ends up being a story of exclusion for many of us in the backgrounds we were raised in. It was actually required the supremacy was required to be a Christian. And if we really think about it, supremacy has been baked into our doctrines, our practices, our rituals. I was thinking about, just because I'm married, I'm not picking on Catholics because I think it transcends all denominations, and I think it transcends religion. But being married to a Catholic, I was thinking about this idea of supremacy and the shock, the utter shock when Steve and I got married and he revealed to me that growing up Catholic, he was taught that, oh no, the Catholics were the only ones going to heaven. I was like, what? I was never taught that. I didn't know that. And then to top it off, his mother passed away this last year and out of honor for her because her Catholic faith was really important to her. We were having her memorial service at the church. And as a few of us met with the priest to plan this service, we actually asked if, if we could do um, not have a full service with communion. And when the priest pushed back, we said, well, there's about 80 of us, family, 
and only about four of us would be able to take communion because we wouldn't be included in that ritual and that practice. I think, I'm going to guess that a lot, of, a lot of us would agree that we wouldn't want to stay Christian if we also had to claim supremacy, if that was part of the deal. But here's the problem. So if we were going to leave out of this sense of being purer than the Christian purity that we're trying to leave, we would actually be doing the same thing, walking toward toward this identity of innocence. But what Brian McLaren tells us is that there is an option for us. We can stay Christian, reject supremacy, and actually seek solidarity. We can leave the supremacy behind. We can name it and claim it and own it, and we can leave it behind. Because we can embrace the idea that there's absolutely no room in the life of faith that we know through Jesus to actually build walls to be about division, to actually see a world that has clean and unclean. Because that's not the call in our lives. And as this seems to get more complicated, I think we can simplify it by saying one thing. Let's look toward as I called him a few weeks ago, our legendary leader, Jesus, for the blueprint on what it actually looks like to seek solidarity. Because in Jesus' world, there was no buddy that was clean or unclean, in or out, because it was Jesus who touched lepers. It was Jesus who was the one who stood up for the woman who was caught in adultery. And he was the one who said, let the one with no sin cast the first stone. And it was Jesus that ate with tax collectors and sinners, invited all sorts of people to his table. It was Jesus who roamed the countryside with women of all things. It was Jesus who broke down walls, who reminds us, who gives us a reset when we continually need it in this human nature of ours that we are all connected. We are all connected. We are all created in the image of God. You know, theologians use another word for solidarity. They use the word incarnation. The word became flesh. I think for many of us, that is our belief, right? that it was Jesus that embodied the spirit of God in the flesh, which means he was in solidarity with all of humanity. And it's through Jesus that God joins us in solidarity, not just religious humanity, not just the pure, the innocent, this idealized kind of humanity, but the messy, broken humanity of all of us in this room. And instead of a cult of innocence, we can be part of a movement of solidarity. And staying in solidarity with Christianity and all its failures actually allows us to stay in solidarity with humanity and all its, fa- all its faults. And it's this path of incarnation and solidarity that asks 
us to identify with humanity, to identify without discrimination, to reflect God's undiscriminate love to everybody, everywhere, and in every place. How do we do that? I think some of it is just the aha, the insight, maybe the acknowledgement of some beliefs deeply held that we weren't even aware that we were holding. That's what I felt when I was reading this. It's like, oh yeah, I sometimes do believe I'm that innocent. I absolutely do. So maybe it's about recognition of beliefs held, insight that leads to change, or eyes to see God's truth and his actual mission of breaking down dividing walls, to be part of this mission he invites us to, to bring good news to everybody. You know, Jesus has a lot of good stories, and there's a lot of good stories that would have fit this message. But the one that really spoke to me was the one about the Good Samaritan, and I love the Good Samaritan story, and a lot of us are familiar with the Good Samaritan story. There's a priest and a Levite that are obsessed with their own purity, and they don't want to touch that injured man laying on the side of the road because they don't want to be unclean by his blood. And then there's this Samaritan, this kind of dirty half-Gentile who cares much more about the injured man than he does about staying clean. So here's a story from Luke 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, replied, who do you read it? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the other side. But it was a Samaritan as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, denarii, Maggie, denarii. <laughs> thank you. And thank you. And gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Like the lawyer, we all know that we're to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We also know that we're to love, love our neighbor as ourself. And like, the, and like the lawyer, we often ask that question even if we don't ask it out loud. 
and who is our neighbor and who is not. And this is the story that Jesus is telling so that we might know what it means to live out the greatest commandment. Because the reality is, friends, we'll cross the road for someone we know, but we won't always cross for the stranger. We'll cross the road when it's convenient and it's on the way, but when it asks us to change or takes us out of the way or costs too much, we just might cross to the other side of the road. We'll cross the road for a citizen, but how about a migrant? We'll cross the road for those who look like us and think like us and act like us and believe like us. But for those who don't, we pass on to the other side of the road. We'll cross the road when it's in our best interest, but when it's not, we pass on by. And the truth is there's some people we're willing to cross the road for and there's others that we're not. And that supremacy, that cult of innocence buried deep inside, it's revealed in the lawyer's question, and who is my neighbor? Because it's really a polite way of asking, and who is not my neighbor? Who's not deserving of my love? Whose life is not worthy of my time and my effort? Who can I ignore, denigrate, hate, or just pass by. But Jesus reminds us in this story, here's the answer. You can't pass by anybody, no one, because we are all part of the body of Christ. We are all created in the image of God. There is no but in neighbor. Although in our humanness, we continue to make there a but, and the interesting thing is that the issue for Jesus is not the identity of the neighbor, where he or she comes from, what she or he has done or left undone, or what he or she thinks about us. And there'd be no way, right, for the priest or the Levite or the Samaritan to even know that information about this man who was robbed and stripped and left for dead. But the issue for Jesus is what action are you and I going to take or refuse to take when we find someone on the side of the road? Are we going to cross the road or are we going to keep on going? Because I think so often our choice is made on who we believe someone to be. And if we keep separating from whatever or whoever we believe is flawed or doesn't think the way we do, whatever embarrasses us, we will find ourselves alone. There's a theologian and a writer, Francis Schaeffer, and he says this, if we demand perfection or nothing, we will have nothing. We can associate disassociate, reassociate with all kinds of groups and identities, and at the end of the day, we are all human. And as Kate Bowler says, there's no cure for being human. And the reality is we are a hot mess. We're stuck with ourselves, we're stuck with each other, 
And we are inescapably, incurably human. And Brian McLaren would say, that is a compelling reason to stay Christian. You know, both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament talk a lot about our humanity, warns of the possibilities of self-destruction, points to the possibility of um, new beginnings. And I think this is the thing about staying Christian. It is in itself an act of solidarity. Brian McLaren, he lays out these four options when it comes to staying Christian and our humanity. First, he says, there's no way. Humanity is doomed. Secondly, there's one way. And Christianity or some other single religion or ideology is it. Three, there is one way, and it is the rejection of all religion. Or number four, there may be a way to draw the best resources we can from all our traditions, not to cure us of being human, but to help us to become humane. Because in the end, we humans, were all connected. We're woven, as Dr. King said, in an inescapable web of mutuality. So I guess you have to ask yourself, what option of those can you live with? I sort of like the idea, picking the work of solidarity that's already embedded in our Christian tradition, of looking for collaborators from other traditions, religious or not. Because when we embrace solidarity, we embrace humanity. And we choose solidarity modeled by Jesus. And it ends up being about going to the deepest and most genuine core of our, of our Christian tradition. Because when we go there, this is what we find. A love that connects us and everyone and everything everywhere. If we do that, we don't need to go anywhere else. There's a way of staying Christian that connects us to others in this quest for solidarity rather than separating from them in this quest for innocence and dominance and supremacy. You know, we usually cross the road when it's safe to do so. We've been taught that since an early age, right? But remembering this message, rethinking this idea of solidarity, resetting ourselves, it means we might need to take some risks. It'll ask us to face our fears, to face the fear of others, to be willing to change. It's going to ask us to cross the road. You know, Dr. King um, imagines that the why for the priest and the Levite in today's story is that they were afraid. And he says, the first question that the priest and the Levite asked, if I stop to help this man, what's going to happen to me? But the Samaritan, he flipped that question. And he said, if I don't stop to help this man, what's going to happen to him? Our Christian faith, friends, 
is not just about taking care of us and ours. It is far bigger, far beyond us, and it is a call to solidarity. Nadia Bowles-Weber, from her book, Shameless, A Sexual Reformation, said this. My Christian faith tells me that good news is only good if it's for everyone. Otherwise, it's just ideology. We are human. We will struggle. We will mess up. We will go forward a few feet and we will step back one. But at the end of the day, we need Jesus. And in looking to Jesus, we can trust that we need to be seeking solidarity. And the hope and the beauty is that we have God and we have each other because we are in this together. I'm going to end with a quick video that's really just kind of a cheap laugh, to be honest. But it sure sums up what it means to be in it together. So take a look at this and then I'll pray. Are you doing it? <laughs> Do you have to poo poo too? Do you think you might have to go poo poo too? Good try, buddy. You got any more in there? I I love you so much, buddy. Good job, buddy. Do you have to go poo-poo? Okay, I'm a grandma, all right? What else can I say? Let me pray. Holy and gracious God, uh, it's it's good to laugh and it's good to love and it's good to see things through the eyes of a child. And the truth and the reality is, God, that you've given us one another to do this together. This work of solidarity. This work of, of seeing you and each and every person we come across. God, we are so grateful that we are created in your image. That we are called to love you and love one another fully. And what we know is that in our humanness, Boy, do we need you. So thank you. Thank you for grace and love. And thank you for letting us be a part of your mission of bringing that good news to earth. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Oh, shoot. I'm stuck. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Well, this is not a funny story. I was at a funeral yesterday uh, for a woman who was um, 68 when she passed, a brain tumor in three months. And I didn't know her very well, but I know her daughter. And her daughter stood up and she said, uh, my mom was a leader, she was an educator, an administrator, and my mom's mantra that she led with was, uh, we can solve 95% of any problem that faces us if we can get people to sit down at a table together. 
And I, it just struck me so much because that's what she embodied in all of her work, in all of her life, in the, the, the table she set for her, her children and their, and their partners. And I was just really struck by that. And it made me think of the table that Jesus set. And I know that I've talked to you about this before, but it blows my mind every time, so I'm gonna keep saying it. But on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered not just his friends, but also his betrayer around the same table. And they shared this meal together. And it, it, when Jesus said to them, one of you is going to betray me tonight, they all said, surely not me. That presumed innocence, it can't be me. And, and yet Jesus set the same table for every single one of them, even the one who was gonna betray him that night. And the, the beauty of that is not lost on me. And I want to be a person that sets a table both literally and figuratively for people that I don't agree with, for people who have hurt me, for people who um, don't have my best interest in mind. And I wanna do that out of the same love and sacrifice that Jesus had for us. So um, this is the part of our evening where we remember that table that Jesus set for his friends and enemies alike. And he gathered his friends and he took the bread and he gave thanks to his father and he broke it. And he looked at them, each of them in the eyes and said, this is broken for you. Eat this and remember me. And in the same way, he poured wine into the cup, gave thanks and said, this is the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of all of your sins drink it and remember me. And so that is what we do. When we gather here on Sunday nights, we remember that, we recenter ourselves around that, and this table is open to all. And we invite each one of you to join us. The way that our tradition of taking communion is, we'll just have one line here in the middle and please sanitize your hands. And then you can take a piece of bread, um, it's all gluten-free, dip it into the cup and hear the words, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. If you are not ready to take in-person elements with us, um, that's totally okay. We also have a box of prepackaged elements. You can still come through the line and receive those words of institution spoken over you, and then you can take your elements back to your seat. I would invite you, if you're able, to stand with me, and we're going to pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. guys get a chance, um, head out here. I'll be out there with Sheems, maybe Jay. We would love for you guys to participate in our community meal that's going to be in a couple weeks or help us out with our kids. We would love that. We're so excited about Jay. We have to tell you, it's kind of a God thing with Stephanie leaving quite quickly. And thank you, Nancy Hirschfeld, for um, doing so much of the footwork and... And Jay feels like just the right person for the right time. So we are grateful. So with that, if you want to hold your hands out for our benediction and hear these words, no matter who you are or what you've done, 
no matter who you love or what you've lost. No matter where you've been or the places that you've stayed, you always have a place at the table because you are a beloved child of God and beloved you belong. Go in peace, everyone. Have a great week.